Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection, COVID-19 Crisis Edition. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this month, we start a special mini-series on social protection for informal workers in the context of the COVID-19 global pandemic. This global health crisis has brought many countries, cities and states to halt as authorities try to slow down the spread and flatten the curve. This unprecedented lockdown has also deep social and economic consequences and impact the lives of billions of workers. In this opening episode, we invite Sally Rover to discuss how this health and economic crisis impact informal workers, the policy responses, and the challenges governments will have to face in order to protect informal workers' health and livelihoods. Sally Rover is WIGO's International Coordinator. She holds a PhD in Political Science from the University of California at Berkeley, and she has studied for 20 years the ways in which laws, policies, and politics shape informal work and informal workers' organizations. In this talk, Sally analyzes the immediate responses to the crisis, such as cash grants and projects, the challenges that might lie ahead for governments and workers. On the next episodes, we will explore more in-depth other issues that revolve around protection of informal workers in terms of healthcare provision, work and income security as the global pandemic crisis unfolds. And now, let's listen to our talk with Sally Rover. Sally, welcome to the Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Right. So let's dive into it. So the COVID-19 pandemic is not only a global health crisis, but it is also uh, an economic crisis hitting workers all around the world, but in distinct ways. What are the pathways through which the pandemic is affecting the economic conditions of different groups of informal workers? Okay, so I think one way to think about those different pathways is to, first of all, think about all workers. So the pandemic is affecting workers in all sectors in certain common ways, right? So the first and most obvious way is the loss of work. So many people, many workers in the formal sector have lost work because of the shutdowns and many people in the informal economy have also lost work. So that's one common effect across different categories of workers. Similarly, I would say workers in many sectors and in both the formal and informal economy are who are continuing to work are facing very severe exposure to health and safety risks, right? So, you know, formal workers who obviously healthcare workers are the ones who are really in a dangerous place right now and need protections. And also there are 
workers in the informal economy who, who are continuing to work and especially exposed to those risks. So that's what's in common first. Um, and then I think in terms of how it plays out across different categories of informal workers, you know, we have to consider both the health crisis itself and the economic crisis that goes along with it. As you pointed out, both are taking place at once. But we also have to consider the government interventions because those have a very big effect on what's happening with workers. Again, we can even look at formal workers and informal workers. So part of the question is, who among the workforce is it that figures in the picture as governments try to figure out how to design relief packages, right? So Again, the, the first port of call is a lot of people are being, laid, formal wage workers are being laid off. And so unemployment, relief for unemployment, extension of uh, sick leave, extension of health care. So those are the things that are in play first. Um, but then in the informal economy and across different groups of informal workers, the government interventions are quite different. So even where the health crisis hasn't yet really hit strongly, the different informal worker groups are being hit very strongly by the way that the government interventions are playing out. So there's some governments that don't recognize informal workers at all. Many governments that recognize some informal workers, for example, as essential service providers, but don't recognize all of them. Um, there's one group that seems to be just absolutely invisible and not recognized at all, and that's home-based workers, including home workers in supply chains that have been broken for some time now. So we're hearing from our partners in South Asia and Southeast Asia that some supply chains were broken a month ago, and so there are no more orders and there's no work and so on, and there's no recognition in, in the government responses of this category that they're just the least visible. So that's having a, a big impact as well on the different categories of workers. And it's playing out quite differently in different countries and across different worker groups. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the beginning of your answer about the exposure. What kind of health risks are informed workers in particular exposed to during this time? Okay, so I think there are both systemic health issues that have always existed, but that are quite urgently exposed at the moment. And then there are some health risks that are more specific to the pandemic. So we're thinking of the health risks that are more systemic. It's things like the fact that so many informal workers lack health insurance in countries that don't have universal healthcare systems. In countries that do, many of them lack access to quality healthcare. Maybe there's no clinic nearby, they can't access it with, you know, they don't have the right papers or whatever it is. So a lot of access issues. And then there are occupational health and safety issues that, again, have been there all along, but they're just the fact that there, that there are risks there is even more, it's sort of laid bare in this circumstance, right? So many of the workers in our network don't have access to water or so, or other forms of sanitation in their workplaces, and many also don't have them in their homes. So again, that's an issue that's always existed, but the fact that those deficits are there is really playing a, an unfortunate and large role in what's happening. And then there are risks that are specific to the pandemics, and those are sort of layered on top of the bigger systemic issues. And it's things like the fact that, so waste pickers, for example, who handle recyclable materials, are exposed to the virus because it stays on surfaces for several days. Domestic workers who provide sort of frontline care services are exposed because of their interaction to people as care workers. Street vendors who sell food are, you know, who are continuing to work are exposed to the virus, obviously. So, 
you know, home-based workers, same thing. So there are a lot of risks in terms of being exposed to the virus, both because where they are able to work, they will continue to work because they can't feed themselves otherwise. And also because they engage in activities that would put them in a position of contracting the virus uh, easily. And the fact that so many don't have protective gear and, and those sorts of things. So there, many of these working groups are providing essential goods and services, but at the same time, don't have, not only do they not have protective gear, but they don't really have any protections at all. That's sort of what, you know, the defining characteristic of being an informal worker. And so, so it's those things layered on top of the bigger issues. Mm. And what governments or, or in the case of domestic workers, employers uh, should do in order to mitigate those health risks? So if we're talking about the systemic issues, the most urgent call that is being made on the part of many actors, so many of the members of our network and many others as well, is universal health coverage. So there just has to be universal health coverage. Governments have to fix that system. And employers, so even if we're thinking about employers who are not specifically domestic workers employers, but employers in general have to contribute a fair share through taxation in order for there to be universal health coverage. It's the problems of not having that in place are, are coming through. So that's stop number one in terms of fixing the systemic issue is there has to be a rethinking of universal health coverage. Um, and then in terms of the pandemic specific issues, one of the things that we're hearing from our members that governments could do is providing clear, accessible, and appropriate information to informal workers groups and other vulnerable populations because there's also a lot of misinformation circulating around. There's some fraud taking place. And so, so clear, accessible, appropriate information is one thing that governments can do to, to help things like... Um, you know, how to keep yourself safe if you do continue to work. And then there are there are interventions that we're seeing in different places that help make that happen. So if you're giving people advice to wash their hands, then you need to provide water and soap, um, you know, hand washing stations, for example. So those are things that, that governments can do immediately. Um, there are worker groups as well that are calling for protective equipment. So it's not only healthcare workers, obviously that's where we're focusing, but there are, you know, these other workers also need um, protective equipment if it can be made available. So the, you know, masks, Again, water and soap, gloves, you know, things like that. Many groups are calling for these things. And then if, we, if we're thinking about health overall and, and mitigating health risks in this circumstance, I think that we also can't lose sight of the nutrition question and the need for food distribution to problems to be solved immediately. So because a lot of people are not getting the nutrition they need, they're, you know, maybe they've lost their, they can't work and there are no cash grants in place, let's say, and they don't have any food at home because they eat day to day. And so they're starving already. So there's a nutrition component to the health question that, that really needs to be addressed urgently. So the crisis is, is spreading quickly around the world, but it seems that we are only in the beginning with many countries, states, cities locking down their businesses, restricting movement in different ways or degrees in order to contain or at least to slow down the contagion, uh, which, as you said, is affecting informal workers quite heavily. What kind of measures should governments undertake now? in the beginning of the crisis in order to protect informal workers? Okay, so yeah, so immediate interventions that members are calling for are, first of all, there has to be some intervention for income support. So 
again, emergency cash grants are emerging as the most practical and effective type of intervention when it comes to income support because people have simply stopped working. And so emergency cash grants are certainly, I would say, the most immediate intervention that's needed. Then there's a call for food rations, for example, places where people can't leave their homes to get food because of the way the shutdown of activity has taken place. There need to be free food rations. That's another, again, urgent, immediate demand that we're hearing from many different affiliates in different regions. Some of the other things that they're demanding for the short term or immediate term is uh, things like the suspension of debt payments or the suspension of uh, interest on, on loans, you know, things like that, suspension of rent payments. You know, there are all sorts of different kind of variations on this, but the point is people who live from day to day or week to week just can't pay whatever they, they owe. And there are many people in the informal economy who have these sort of relationships of debt, who have debt in one form or another, who can't pay their, can't make their debt payments. So those need to be suspended. And then I think another perhaps less obvious thing that governments could be doing immediately is reaching out to community-based organizations like membership-based organizations of informal workers to learn what's needed to help people survive. Because many governments, even if, if they have the political will to do what's needed, they don't necessarily have the technical know-how or they're, they're in some cases reaching out for information. What, what do we need to do to help this, this segment of the population get through? And so organizations can play an important role there. And that's where informal workers organizations will be in a position to be able to bring things to light that, that also need doing once these basic pieces, I think, are in place, the cash grants and, and the food supply and so on. I think of those as the, yeah, the, the most immediate things to do. Yeah. Indeed, several countries are responding. So, so this crisis has triggered a wide range of responses in terms of economic and social policies from governments. And as you just mentioned, uh, arguably one of that deserved more attention in in the policy debates was the universal cash transfer, which some countries are trying to implement just now. Uh, what is Wigo's view on that? Could this be a solution for the matter of income security for informal workers, you think? Yeah, I do think so. I think that emergency cash transfers have emerged as the most essential and most urgent intervention that's needed. And I think that they need to happen even in places where, again, the health crisis hasn't spread much because the economic crisis has already spread. And in fact, preceded the health crisis. What we're hearing, again, from Southeast South Asia, for example, is the economic crisis hit a month ago when supply chains in China started to shut down. So absolutely, I think there's broad agreement within informal workers, organizations, and within WeGo as well, that cash transfers are essential and are urgent. And we also have heard from across the network about kind of a lot of different examples of how they're being designed and how they're being implemented. And it turns out there are, there are a lot of, you know, it's not, it's not as easy to design an emergency cash transfer in a situation like this. But so in some cases, the cash transfer programs that have been designed are reaching our our constituencies and and in some cases they're not so there are a lot of i think design and delivery questions uh, still to be resolved and a lot of learning to take place absolutely and let's try to look ahead for now i, I mean i think it's it's hard to 
look ahead um, in, in this particular moment, but uh, let's give it a shot. For the coming months, let's call it the medium term, what measures should be undertaken when the social isolation measures are lifted or relaxed? Okay, yeah. So it's important to start thinking about that now. I, I think that it is the lifting of restrictions is likely to happen gradually. So there would need to be a lot of attention paid to these different category of workers that we started to talk about in terms of who's allowed to go back to work and who's not. So keeping in mind that what we're likely to see, I think, is a gradual lifting of the social distancing measures. It's likely to impact different kinds of workers in, in different ways. So that's something to keep in mind. For the medium term, one thing that would help everyone, so not only workers, but also governments, is to find a way to put in place some better negotiation structures, some better dialogue structures, the dialogue platforms, or that would enable governments and organized informal workers to work through what is needed, because we really, we don't know, right? We, we're not sure how this will play out. We're not sure what the needs will be. We're not sure what the rollout of relaxing restrictions is going to look like. And so it's important that there are structures in place for there to be dialogue, not only between governments and formal trade unions, but also between governments and informal workers organizations. So that's one thing I would say for the medium term. Another thing that really needs to be considered is of the basic protections that have been rushed into place under emergency conditions, trying to keep some of those in place. I mean, the consideration of keeping some of those in place. So universal health coverage or, you know, extension of certain supports. There needs to be some consideration to whether and how to make those permanent. And that's because of the social costs that we can all see of having such extreme inequality and so many people under such a high amount of risk. It's all being laid bare in, in the moment. And so so that part of the, the medium term considerations just have to be which of these protections actually do we need to keep in place in order um, to prevent going back to the start. And that might even mean things, bigger reforms of so things like restructuring taxation, revisiting the role of the corporate sector, and all sorts of big questions that are very difficult politically and they're, they're very complicated but those it's those types of considerations that I think will have to come into play as we start to look down the road uh, a little bit mm, interesting and what do you think governments should consider when implementing such support measures uh, what are the the challenges to which they should be aware in order to effectively reach informal workers okay so one of the questions as they're put into place, now is how targeted. So should these be universal, like you mentioned, universal cash grants? So should cash grants be universal or should they be targeted or should they be somewhere in the middle in the sense of being sort of broadly accessible where you only screen out the affluent and just make it available to everyone? So that question of how to balance whether the support measure is universal or targeted or somewhere in between will have to be part of the considerations, I think, for governments, not only in the short term, but also in the long term. And again, keeping the, the goal in mind of how do we prevent a situation like this where we have so many extremely vulnerable people, you know, what is the best way to think about how to extend this and how to make it possible? And then this, this issue of partnerships and of setting up spaces for dialogue and for governments and, and informal worker organizations to work together, I think is another one that 
you know, really should be on the table from the beginning. And that's because what we're finding, what we're hearing from different places is governments need to partner with MBOs or with allies in order to solve issues that they just don't know how to solve. So for example, with cash transfers, one of our partners, HomeNet Thailand, has said the, the government has put in place a good emergency cash transfer system. It's three months of salary. It's widely accessible. But the mechanism for getting it involves a website registration. And of course, Many informal workers or most of their members don't have a computer. They don't have websites. They're not computer literate or they, you know, they just, they can't, they don't have a way of registering on a website. So it's, you know, the, the organizations in civil society that do that type of intermediary work will need to be partners for the longer term to help solve some of these problems. Same thing with, you know, if you're doing cash transfers by bank accounts, what do you do about workers who don't have bank accounts? How do you reach? You know, that's another type of question that that needs some intermediation on the part of organizations. So I think it's an important thing for governments to be considering right from the start, but maybe a less obvious one than the usual questions of how do you design, you know, there's some classic questions, how do you design effective cash transfer? And so we have to remember not only that this is an unusual circumstance, it's not your normal, you know, your ordinary cash transfer, it's an emergency one, but we also have to consider looking in the longer term, who are the right people who need to be involved in the design and how can we create spaces for there to be collaboration between the, the people putting the, the interventions in place and the, and the people who are supposed to benefit from it. Um, to conclude, such a heavy issue on a more positive note. Uh, so this global crisis has brought uh, enormous human and economic costs. But on the other side, it has uh, widened the range of possible policy alternatives for the state to tackle issues that affect the lives of billions of people in terms of health and income security. What kind of policies do you think might contribute to informal workers in the future? Okay, so I, th I think that, you know, one thing that has become very clear in the context of the crisis as it unfolds is the fact that so many informal workers operate in a circumstance where there are a lot of intersecting risks. So the risks that they've, again, sort of always had, risk of falling into debt, risk of falling into poor health, you know, those sorts of risks that have always been there are really coming into sharp relief. And so I think the fact that they're becoming more visible in this circumstance would open up more space for policy innovation around levers that can be used to reduce some of those risks. So things like the proposal for suspension of loan payments or significantly reduced interest, so very low interest loans are an example of a type of policy intervention that could contribute to informal workers' well-being, the well-being of the workforce as a whole in the longer term. And there might be more space for thinking about what that would look like as we think about the longer term. Then what I had just mentioned about the creation of dialogue spaces, I think is another one where we can think about policies that put into place those sort of structures that just facilitate collaboration between 
governments and perhaps the private sector and workers' organizations in ways that we haven't thought about. You know, how, how do you, what does social dialogue look like in a circumstance where we recognize that the existing structures leave out a lot of workers? There's an opportunity here to build some structures out of the emergency kind of status that we find ourselves in now. Um, and then last one, so for many informal workers, they don't just face, this won't be the only crisis that they go through. So they go through shocks to income, shocks to well-being at different points in their lives for different reasons. So in all of those circumstances, part of the struggle to survive is around recovering one's livelihood after such a crisis. So it could be, for example, related to climate change. So maybe a flood wipes out a market or wipes out their homes or, you know, those sorts of things. A big piece of what's needed is some sort of livelihood recovery support that will also be needed coming out of this crisis. But there may, again, be more attention to what it might look like, again, recognizing those intersecting risks that, that are coming into such sharp relief now. So, yeah, those those are a few things that come to mind about in terms of the type of policies where we could really see a lot of sort of useful and helpful innovation that could contribute to a brighter sort of longer term outlook for, for many of the workers in our network. Excellent. Sally Rover, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if you want to learn more about the responses of governments and labor organizations to protect informal workers, please visit Wigo's website at www.wigo.org slash COVID-19 crisis altogether, where you will find advocacy materials, guidelines for workers, Wigo's specialist analysis, and more. We will also leave links to informal workers' global networks, websites, and social media pages where they post their statements and local government's responses also. This was the first episode of this mini-series of three episodes on the COVID-19 global pandemic and social protection for informal workers. So if you like the show, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss the rest of the series. And please make sure to follow Wego on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook, so you stay updated on our latest news and publications about how the crisis is affecting informal workers, workers' demands, and policy responses. I am Cyrus Afshar, and this was the WeGo's Informal Economy Podcast Social Protection COVID-19 Crisis Edition. Take care, and see you next month.